Book Five, Chapter Seven of Last Days of Pompeii. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. Last Days of Pompeii by Edward G. Bulwer-Lytton. Book Five, Chapter Seven: The Progress of the Destruction. The cloud which had scattered so deep a murkiness over the day had now settled into a solid and impenetrable mass. It resembled less even the thickest gloom of a night in the open air than the close and blind darkness of some narrow room. But in proportion as the blackness gathered did the lightnings around Vesuvius increase in their vivid and scorching glare. Nor was their horrible beauty confined to the usual hues of fire no rainbow ever rivalled their varying and prodigal dyes, now brightly blue as the most azure depth of a southern sky, now of a livid and snake-like green, darting restlessly to and fro as the folds of an enormous serpent, now of a lurid and intolerable crimson gushing forth through the columns of smoke far and wide, and lighting up the whole city from arch to arch then suddenly dying into a sickly paleness, like the ghost of their own life. In the pauses of the showers you heard the rumbling of the earth beneath, and the groaning waves of the tortured sea, or, lower still, and audible but to the watch of intensest fear, the grinding and hissing murmur of the escaping gases through the chasms of the distant mountain. Sometimes the cloud appeared to break from its solid mass, and, by the lightning, to assume quaint and vast mimicries of human or of monster shapes, striding across the gloom, hurtling one upon the other, and vanishing swiftly into the turbulent abyss of shade, so that, to the eyes and fancies of the affrighted wanderers, the unsubstantial vapours were as the bodily forms of gigantic foes, the agents of terror and of death. The ashes in many places were already knee-deep, and the boiling showers which came from the steaming breath of the volcano forced their way into the houses, bearing with them a strong and suffocating vapour. In some places immense fragments of rock, hurled upon the house-roofs, bore down along the street masses of confused ruin, which yet more and more with every hour obstructed the way, and as the day advanced, the motion of the earth was more sensibly felt, the footing seemed to slide and creep, nor could chariot or litter be kept steady even on the most level ground. Sometimes the huger stones, striking against each other as they fell, broke into countless fragments, emitting sparks of fire which caught whatever was combustible within their reach, and along the plains beyond the city the darkness was now terribly relieved for several houses and even vineyards had been set on flames, and at various intervals the fires rose suddenly and fiercely against the solid gloom. To add to this partial relief of the darkness, the citizens had here and there, in the more public places, such as the porticoes of temples and the entrances to the forum, endeavoured to place rows of torches, but these rarely continued long. The showers and the winds extinguished them, and the sudden darkness into which their sudden birth was converted had something in it doubly terrible, and doubly impressing on the impotence of human hopes, the lesson of despair. 
Frequently, by the momentary light of these torches, parties of fugitives encountered each other, some hurrying towards the sea, others flying from the sea back to the land, for the ocean had retreated rapidly from the shore, an utter darkness lay over it, and upon its groaning and tossing waves the storm of cinders and rock fell without the protection which the streets and roofs afforded to the land. Wild, haggard, ghastly with supernatural fears, these groups encountered each other, but without the leisure to speak, to consult, to advise, for the showers fell now frequently, though not continuously, extinguishing the lights which showed to each band the death-like faces of the other, and hurrying all to seek refuge beneath the nearest shelter. The whole elements of civilization were broken up. Ever and anon, by the flickering lights, you saw the thief hastening by the most solemn authorities of the law, laden with, and fearfully chuckling over, the produce of his sudden gains. If in the darkness wife was separated from husband, or parent from child, vain was the hope of reunion. Each hurried blindly and confusedly on. Nothing in all the various and complicated machinery of social life was left, save the primal law of self-preservation. Through this awful scene did the Athenian wade his way, accompanied by Ione and the blind girl. Suddenly a rush of hundreds in their path to the sea swept by them. Nydia was torn from the side of Glaucus, who with Ione was borne rapidly onward, and when the crowd, whose forms they saw not, so thick was the gloom, were gone, Nydia was still separated from their side. Glaucus shouted her name. No answer came. They retraced their steps. In vain. They could not discover her. It was evident she had been swept along some opposite direction by the human current. Their friend, their preserver, was lost and hitherto Nydia had been their guide. Her blindness rendered the scene familiar to her alone. Accustomed through a perpetual night to thread the windings of the city, she had led them unerringly towards the seashore, by which they had resolved to hazard an escape. Now which way could they wend? All was rayless to them, a maze without a clue. Wearied, despondent, bewildered, they, however, passed along, the ashes falling upon their heads, the fragmentary stones dashing up in sparkles before their feet. "'Alas, alas!' murmured Ione. "'I can go no farther. My steps sink among the scorching cinders. Fly, dearest! Beloved, fly, and leave me to my fate!' "'Hush, my betrothed, my bride!' Death with thee is sweeter than life without thee. Yet whither, oh, whither can we direct ourselves through the gloom? Already it seems that we have made but a circle and are in the very spot which we quitted an hour ago. Oh, gods, yon rock, see, it hath riven the roof before us. It is death to move through the streets. Blessed lightning, see, I only see, the portico of the temple of fortune is before us. Let us creep beneath it. It will protect us from the showers. He caught his beloved in his arms, and with difficulty and labour gained the temple. He bore her to the remoter and more sheltered part of the portico, and leaned over her that he might shield her with his own form from the lightning and the showers. 
the beauty and the unselfishness of love could hallow even that dismal time. "'Who is there?' said the trembling and hollow voice of one who had preceded them into their place of refuge. "'Yet what matters? The crush of the ruined world forbids us to friends or foes.' I only turned at the sound of the voice, and with a faint shriek cowered again beneath the arms of Glaucus, and he, looking in the direction of the voice, beheld the cause of her alarm. Through the darkness glared forth two burning eyes, the lightning flashed and lingered athwart the temple, and Glaucus with a shudder perceived the lion to which he had been doomed couched beneath the pillars, and close beside it, unwitting of the vicinity, lay the giant form of him who had accosted them, the wounded gladiator, Niger. That lightning had revealed to each other the form of beast and man, yet the instinct of both was quelled. Nay, the lion crept nearer and nearer to the gladiator as for companionship, and the gladiator did not recede or tremble. The revolution of nature had dissolved her lighter terrors as well as her wonted ties. While they were thus terribly protected, a group of men and women bearing torches passed by the temple. They were the congregation of the Nazarenes, and a sublime and unearthly emotion had not, indeed, quelled their awe, but it had robbed awe of fear. They had long believed, according to the error of the early Christians, that the last day was at hand. They imagined now that the day had come. "'Woe! woe!' cried in a shrill and piercing voice the elder at their head. "'Behold, the Lord descendeth to judgment. He maketh fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. Woe! woe! ye strong and mighty! Woe to ye of the Fasces and the purple! Woe to the idolater and the worshipper of the beast!' Woe to ye who pour forth the blood of saints and gloat over the death-pangs of the sons of God! Woe to the harlot of the sea! Woe! Woe! And with a loud and deep chorus the troop chanted forth along the wild horrors of the air, Woe to the harlot of the sea! Woe! Woe! The Nazarenes paced slowly on, their torches still flickering in the storm, their voices still raised in menace and solemn warning, till, lost amid the windings in the streets, the darkness of the atmosphere and the silence of death again fell over the scene. There was one of the frequent pauses in the showers, and Glaucus encouraged Ione once more to proceed. Just as they stood, hesitating, on the last step of the portico, an old man with a bag in his right hand, and leaning upon a youth, tottered by. The youth bore a torch. Glaucus recognised the two as father and son, miser and prodigal. "'Father,' said the youth, "'if you cannot move more swiftly, I must leave you, or we both perish.' "'Fly, boy, then, and leave thy sire. "'But I cannot fly to starve. Give me thy bag of gold.' And the youth snatched at it. "'Wretch, wouldst thou rob thy father?' "'Aye!' Who can tell the tale in this hour? Miser, perish! The boy struck the old man to the ground, plucked the bag from his relaxing hand, and fled onward with a shrill yell. Ye gods! cried Glaucus, 
Are ye blind then, even in the dark? Such crimes may well confound the guiltless with the guilty in one common ruin. I only on, on. End of Book 5, Chapter 7